This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Seton Home Study School, an accredited school with over 15,000 students. To find out more, go to seatonhome.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation, uh, along with um, Ed Celebrity Gossip and my apparent zen. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Pillar co-founder and Brendan Fraser superfan, Ed Condon. Ed, what I know of, uh, you know, Brendan Fraser, here's what I know of Brendan Fraser, um, Encino Man. There you go. You see, this is what I'm saying. Like he was back in the day, he was making classic movies. Brendan Fraser is like the the film equivalent of the Kings of Leon. The first two albums were great. The third one was iffy. And then like they did only by the night and they became an absolute. When are you listening to pop music? I just, you have this whole side of your life that I don't know about pop music and I don't stars. think I listen to pop music. I couldn't tell you who who's in the chart. I don't even know if there are still charts, but I couldn't. I mean, I did. I was look. It, it, no, that's not a secret. Like in the in the in the golden era of music of our lifetime, which was like two thousand three to two thousand five, when there were like a dozen amazing albums that all came out in an eighteen month window. Yeah, I was. I, I mean, I lived in London. I went. I, I you could see most of these people live you could see the libertines you could see razor light you could see amy winehouse like i don't kings know any of, of those things except i've heard the name i, amy I once i okay so i'll tell a story about the kings i of actually Leon, thought I, I thought amy winehouse was a christian singer is that right no she's jewish she was jewish i but i oh i thought she made so i'm obviously wrong because i thought she made christian music like i thought amy winehouse was new, no, she made new amy classic jazz and real r&b i mean amy, i oh, miss amy winehouse every day I play Amy Winehouse albums to my baby. Like I miss her every day. Everything, the way the world goes nuts over that egomaniacal lunatic Adele, like that, all that is just displaced Amy Winehouse fervor. You know, we're just trying to all fill the void that she left. RIP Amy. Um, but no, I'll tell you a funny story about the Kings of Leon. I was at a... <laughs> Please do. Because as you know, I don't know any stories about the Kings of Leon or even that no, they, they are. They turned into, when they released their third album, they, fourth album, um, they turned into a global stadium rock band like now they're basically as bad as and as big as u2 they're like sort of our generation they've turned into our generations u2 which is a shame but um no back in the day their first two albums were amazing and they so they were touring they were big in the uk before they were big in the states even though they're a u.s band um and they their opening act for their tour was playing above a bar in camden which is a part of north london and a friend of mine and i went to go and see them the opening band just because we heard that they were Cool. So we were there listening to that. And then we were at the bar and there were these four guys sort of propping up the bar and they look kind of familiar. And my friend and I kind of nudged each like, I think that's the Kings of Leon. And it turned out it was. And so we ended up like having a bunch of beers with them and sharing cigarettes on the fire escape and stuff. And my friend and I had tickets along with his sister to go see their gig the next night at Wembley. And he said to Caleb Follow, said, could you do me a favor? Um, my sister's coming and it'd be really great if you could, you know, give her a shout out from the stage. And he may have kind of implied that his sister was dying. Like he said something to the effect of, you know, she's really not been well, you know, and, <laughs> and I mean, to, to be fair, she had a cold, but, and so the next night from the stage, like this next song is for and, you know, get well soon. And she just turned just like, what is going on? What, it, what just happened there? That's my that's my one claim to fame. That's as close as I've ever come to rock superstardom. That is my what's the what was the Rolling Stone movie called? Twenty feet from famous or almost famous or twenty feet from stardom or I don't I don't remember. I don't about. know that many movies. I thought that was the main the main point I was driving home to. That's a cool story though. Very neat. I'm glad about the Kings of Leon, and uh, it's probably time for us to talk about some other stuff now, huh? All right, fine. I. I will say this. I feel like, I mean, one thing is we have been um, partners uh, for a long time now. And uh, it's amazing. You're always discovering something new about your partner because I thought that I had heard all of your cool stories before. Like when we got to dinner with somebody, you know, you there's a certain set of stories that I suspect you'll tell. And probably you feel the same way about me. But uh I have not heard this one before. I'm surprised. Why don't you tell Ironically, me? Ironically, me hanging out in Barfly 
bumping into the Kings of Leon and, and Jarvis Cocker was there that night too, which was also weird. Um, it's probably not a story I would tell an American bishop, which is usually who, you know, yeah, we're laying you out have the, told some very, the JD and Ed show but for some dinner. Some of your go-to stories are very weird. I mean, um, you probably know the ones I'm talking <laughs> about now. You mean very weird? You probably know the ones that I'm talking about right now. Um, no, I, now that you said very weird, I thought I knew my, my go-to stories, but if, if they're very weird, I, I'm not sure I do. Well, this is a, um, this is a family show, Ed. Wait up. Okay, fine. We'll talk about, <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about now, but okay. Moving okay. right along. Okay. All right. Well, here's what I want to talk about. Um, Ed, this week, Pope Francis did something that was unexpected and uh, from my perspective, really very quite cool. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? I'm assuming you're talking about the addition to the martyrology. I am. The Holy Father added to the Roman martyrology the names of 21 Coptic Orthodox martyrs. What, Ed, is the Roman martyrology? Uh, it, is a, it is a canon, it is a list, a litany, if you will, of those who have been recognized as having been killed in odium fidei, who have died for the faith, who have been killed for their profession of the Christian faith. In each day of the year, there is an entry in the martyrology, which we can read, and uh, um, through who's mar- through the martyrs, we can seek intercession. Um, and the Pope added this week, these 21 Coptic Orthodox martyrs who were martyred um, in 2015, you, you guys remember this because you all saw like the videos of it and everything. I mean, you, it was powerful when it happened, and it's sort of been... There's been a cult of devotion to this um, since, but these uh, 21 Coptic Christian martyrs who were martyred in 2015 on the, on a beach in Libya by ISIS, and this was at the height of um, the uh, power and influence of ISIS, I expect, I, I, I suppose, and uh, yes, sir. I just, I have to correct, it's not ISIS, it's just IS. ISIS yeah. was regional specific, it was the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, and this happened in Libya. So this is when oh, they sort so of franchised sort of out. broader organization. Well, no, no, I think, I mean, I don't know, but I, I, my understanding of it is that it's not, that it wasn't that it was a broader organization. They sort of franchised out the name Islamic State. To, yeah, and then ISIS, we stopped calling ISIS Islamic State of, of Iraq and Syria and started calling it the Islamic State in the Levant. But you're saying this was the non-specified Islamic State. Correct. And what happened? What was the? Do you remember much about their martyrdom? Can you talk about it for a moment? I I believe it was fairly straightforward, which is when when IS sort of um, was was getting active in in Libya. Um, they or not? Yeah, in Libya. Yeah, they, Libya. They, they the um, they they seized a group of basically construction workers. Uh, you know, because it's one of those places where you know you got dotted around sort of in the upcountry, uh, different projects building buildings or maintaining oil rigs and stuff like that. Anyway, they seized this worker crew basically. And it was, um, it was 21 guys, uh, 20 of whom were Coptic Orthodox. And they, in the way that IS does and did, uh, basically invited them to renounce their Christianity and embrace the Islamic faith or be martyred. And and for the sake of making a video, I mean, they were making their goal is making a sort of propaganda video here. Exactly. Um, and and they all they all declined the offer to apostatize to save their lives. They willingly embraced martyrdom. Uh, they you know there was that horrific, but at the same time beautiful video uh, of them being led along a beach in sort of prison jumpsuits, made to kneel, and then ceremonially beheaded uh, simultaneously while facing camera the camera with the with the water behind them, um, and. You know, some of them were visibly praying uh, as they were being forced to kneel, um, but every one of them looked serene. I, I think is the is the word I'm looking for. They they were not freaking out. They were not, um, you know, going to pieces. They they knew what their destination was, and it was a beautiful witness to faith. But of course, the interesting is we've been saying 21 um, Coptic martyrs, and they have but been one recognized. Of them was kind of Coptic. In, a, in an unusual sense. In an unusual sense, yeah. I mean, they've been they've been recognized as martyrs by the Coptic Orthodox Church since basically the day it happened. I think it was like within a week of the video surfacing and them having been killed, the the Coptic Orthodox Church recognized them as martyrs. Um, but you're right. One one of them um, was not Egyptian, was not a Coptic Christian. Um, 
Yeah, so 20 of them, Egyptian, Coptic Christians, described in the Coptic Church, etc. The, yeah. the last one, who's the, the 21st, whose name was Matthew... Um, Ayariga. Ayariga. His story's a little different. Uh, he is. He, he was not um, from Egypt at all. He, he, he hailed from sort of further south. He was from, I, I think as best we know, he's from Ghana. He was Ghanaian as far as I know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and we don't really know what flavor of Christian he grew up being or practicing or, or even was up until they were taken by IS. I mean, there's, um, I think it's generally accepted that he was some kind of Christian, although the predominant denominations in, in Ghana are sort of Pentecostal, evangelical, Protestant. Um, and Latin Catholic. Uh, yeah, but I mean, Catholics in um, Catholics in Ghana, I think, are like 10, 15%, something like that. So it's, you know, if you're just playing the straight odds, it would be more likely than not that he would have been some kind of uh, Christian. But either way, uh, as, after as they were interrogating the the Copts and they were refusing to renounce their faith, they came to him and said, basically, you know, what about you? And his profession of faith, I think, was perhaps the most succinct perfect, I mean, echoes of the apostolic church, um, just said, their faith is my faith. Yeah. And uh, and so he was lined up with the rest of them. And and I think actually the way he said it was, their God is my God. Yeah, well, and I mean, again, and this is, uh, you know, the, and now, so this week, um, Pope, help me with the pronunciation, Tuardros? Tuardros. The head of the Coptic Orthodox Church, Pope Tuardos was in Rome. Yes, was in Rome this week and sort of joined Pope Francis for the for the Wednesday general audience and everything. And um, and Francis announced that having discussed and agreed with his confrere, uh, the, the these twenty one saints martyrs would be incorporated into the Roman martyrology as well. And I mean, I saw some of the usual nonsense pushback online about it. Like, well, this is ridiculous. You know, they weren't they weren't Catholics. Why are we? Just, it's like. That's... Let's talk about Matthew Ayarga for a minute, and then let's talk about that pushback because I find it very interesting. Um, okay. So, but first, Matthew Ayarga. I mean, so the others were bap- were baptized, you know, chrismated in the Coptic Orthodox Church. Had received the Eucharist in the Coptic Orthodox Church, which is an Eastern Apostolic Church, not in union with Rome. Um, but we don't know whether um, Ayarga was baptized or not. Um, we, you know, we don't know very much about what it means that he had a Christian upbringing. Um, we don't know if he belonged, if he had received, yeah, baptism or any other sacrament. And so it's possible that what, I mean, the reason why his declared martyrdom is so interesting is because in the early church, of course, we have all these declarations of baptisms by blood, but which is to say someone who even before baptism chooses to be martyred for the faith. But that's not a common um, characteristic of those who are inscribed in the martyrology or who are canonized in recent decades by any stretch of the imagination. No, no, it's, um, it's not, I mean, you don't, you have to, you have to find some pretty weird circumstances in the world these days where uh, someone sort of either is, is raised without the opportunity of baptism or spontaneously elects to convert to Christianity at the point of martyrdom. Yeah. Um, it's an unusual circle. I mean, it wasn't so unusual in, in Roman times. Um, but yeah, you don't, you don't get it as much now. That's for sure. I think there were some, I think there were some, um, baptism of blood martyrs in Japan at yeah. one point. I think that's right. And, and actually with, with regard to Yarga, I mean, one of the things that's interesting, at least according to Martin Mosbach, who has written about this, a kind of German author who has spent, who wrote a book on, on the, the martyrs is, um, he said that IS had intended to release Iarga because they thought he wasn't a Christian. Um, and he, and like, so it wasn't just that he was going to be killed. And so he sort of went along with them for fellowship in their proclamation of faith. He ha- it seems that he, the power was within his hands to be released. And he actively chose Christ and the witness of martyrdom, like when he had a, a rather kind of clear other choice, which would have been to affirm that he wasn't a Christian and, and, and probably have been released. Yeah. No, his, his was by every account we can find someone who willingly embraced death so that he could embrace Christ. I, 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 it's, it's incredible. It's beautiful. It's, I mean, if that doesn't give you faith, I, I, you know, I don't know what will, you know, um, this is what faith on earth looks like is, is a guy who's offered the choice between freedom 
and professing a belief in Christ and yeah. chooses to die. Yeah. And actually the faith of the, it's the, it's the, you know, it's the faith of those other, presumably the faith of those other, those Egyptians that was probably, even if, even if the so, seeds of conversion had been sort of being sown in him or if indeed he was a Christian, it's potentially at least true that the, those other Christians, those Egyptians, like, he is the first convert of theirs, of the of the fruit of their witness, right? Like, I'm just struck it's off. It's entirely possible. Like, um, I think an important element of this um, inscription in the Roman martyrology for us is, I think sometimes in our contemporary Christian experience, we can be, especially in the West and especially in the United States, we can get so swept up in the notion that we can protect ourselves by sort of participation in, in this in the civic community and that this will be protected by democratic participation in the civic community and an expectation that sort of um, persecution is something which happened somewhere else or so, in some other time that we can forget that we actually, if we become too sort of focused on, the only reason to assert our religious liberty is to then act in religious ways, right? Like, and asserting our religious liberty is only valuable in as much as we're going to use the assertion of our religious liberty to do the good things which the you know which the gospel calls us to do. Like, if we assert our religious liberty to have Catholic schools, but then we don't actually make them that Catholic, or we assert our religious liberty to have sort of charitable institutions, but we don't actually like then use them to fully embrace the. Um, the, the corporal works of mercy and the spiritual works of mercy for that matter, then the the liberty itself can, we're in danger of confusing the good of the, the instrumental good of the liberty with an sort of end in itself, right? And when that happens, I think we can lose sight of the value of, the, the genuine sort of spiritual value of, of, of martyrdom and the way in which persecution has a, an important transcendent meaning for Christians. Yes, I would agree with that. Okay, thank you. Sorry. What are you, what are you giving me that look for? I, I feel like you've got something in mind that you're not saying. I, no. I feel like you're trying to speak in the abstract about something particular that's on your mind, and I'm just wondering if it's worth poking no, you to make I'm it not. come out. I'm not trying to speak in the abstract. I'm not sort of sub, sub-potting someone or something like that. I just, I just think it is true that sometimes in American Christianity, we can become... There's a there's a danger of becoming preoccupied with the assertion of our right to be Christians, even over and against the ex, like the expression of the Christian vocation. Okay, um, uh, let and, me and, let me take a swing at this, and I'll say something on a on the why? same I think topic. I said a very okay. Go ahead. Uh, I'm fine. Well, you're, well, this is no. I'm going to give you the part where you push back. That's not what I'm saying. Don't no, no, I, I don't will don't say, everyone who's listening think I agree with Ed because he's being a jerk again. No, you're not. I, you're fine. Well, I am about to be. I'm sure. Uh, just, you know, just wait a minute. <laughs> um, no. So, for example, like I, I sometimes see on the lines um, people ripping their hair out about how, you know, uh, Catholics in the United States are being persecuted by the government. Like there was that thing the other week where, was it HHS or, or somewhere like OSHA? Or church couldn't use its candle, which is, you know. Yeah, a, a hospital chapel had to get rid yeah. of its adoration candle. Right, which it, is like, a kind it, of, yeah, Mild bias against against a religious organization. Well, it, yeah. it it was a it was a petty and vindictive action yeah, by a that's right. You know, nasty little government agency, of course. That's but right. people, you know, I I saw people react just like you would not believe the persecution we are right. living in We're the end. Attack. This is literally yeah. Nero's Rome. It's like no, no. The the twelve guys on the beach getting the twenty one guys on the beach getting their heads cut off. That's that's what it is to be martyred. And I think I mean it, it's a temptation we all have because I think it's so. Um, it's so part of the DNA of Christianity to expect persecution because there is no conversion in Christianity without a sense of the cross and with the cross comes persecution and all this things. that we are. And I think it's a healthy thing to be on the lookout for persecution and, and to test our faith by how we react to and embrace the persecution that we are presented with. But we also, I think have a tendency to relativize our experience and maximize it and say, well, you know, in the scriptures in the apostolic church, we have this witness of persecution here. And now in our world, we have a court case over a candle. And and to overestimate or to judge um, the witness of persecution and martyrdom by our own experience, when in fact the world is a bigger place. And there That's are other true, and it's on. related to what I was trying to get at. Um, 
And I also think it's very, very true. What I was trying to get at is the way in which sometimes we can confuse the assertion of the right to religious liberty or religious exercise with, um, we can we can sort of prioritize that over and against the actual practice of the thing. Like, and sometimes even I think believers can be exploited politically to to like get all fired up about religious liberty, and we're going to fight, fight, fight for religious liberty. Um, and there is some value to that, but one that's wasted if we don't sort of like make sure to maximally use our religious liberty to be. Um, fully and wholly ourselves as Christians, and two, we should expect that if we use our religious liberty to that end, our religious liberty will be again sort of mitigated or or threatened because um, Christians historically evoke the ire of people in power because of their prophetic witness of self-emptying. And so if we don't use our religious liberty to give a prophetic witness of self-emptying, then we have either sort of confuse the the um, the end with the means, or we have simply failed to make use of the good that, thing that we have. All right, let me uh, let me pose a question to you. Do you think an authentic Christian witness, of its very nature, provokes a response from uh, an aggressive anti-response in a society? Often, Does an right? authentic should an authentic Christian witness, ipso facto, expect to be persecuted as a result? Uh, yeah, I mean, yes. Jesus promises as much. I, I don't disagree with you. The gospel I, is necessary. So, I'm, I'm saying always, by by um, the gospel by that, will prick the conscience of people who both have the gospel already and who don't have the gospel and. Right. So I guess where I'm going with this is to say that I think the important thing then to bear in mind is that the the when when fighting to defend the space in the civil society for authentic religious expression, I, I think it's it's helpful to remember that every victory should provoke another attack. Precisely. That's yeah. That's if you kind are of creating a space for authentic religious witness, it's not like oh, we've got it now. Everything's going to be we fine. No, you should just no, by we, by exercising that freedom, you should then expect to piss people out. Yeah. Right. I mean, and this is true of I mean, you know, you hear all this nonsense about well, you know, in a good old fashioned confessional state, we'd all be fine. So, well, yeah, fine as long as you totally ignore the witness of Reformation Europe, where you had plenty of confessional Christian states who killed Catholics with. <laughs> okay, abandoned. Um, and if you think, whoa, yeah, but they weren't Catholics. All right, well, fine. Are we going we to go to John Chrysostom preaching to the Empress? I mean, you know, <laughs> you can get, you know, the Constantine was not uh, an unfettered good for um, right. for the for the early church. Uh, so yeah, I think the the witness to the civil power and the witness in the civil space should always provoke a negative reaction because the announcement of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the love of God for all of humanity seems to have that effect um, because, you know, outside of the church is the devil and the devil's reaction to the gospel is always violence. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, we have to take a break, actually. We do? Oh. Yeah, we do. Okay. This week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to us by the Seton Home Study School. The Seton Home Study School incorporates the Catholic faith into everything they do. That is one of their defining features. Seton Home Study School helps to provide parents with everything they need to be successful teaching at home. So if you're a Catholic family and you're thinking about homeschooling, or if you're a pastor, a parochial vicar, or bishop for that matter, and people under your spiritual care are thinking about homeschooling, Seton Home Study School is probably something to look at because they offer detailed daily lesson plans and academic counselors standing by to answer questions. And Seton, participating in the Seton program means participating in an accredited school that offers full school enrollment and uh, makes available kind of all of the things that you need to um, do schooling successfully at home. They have detailed lesson plans, academic counselors standing by to answer questions. They have over 15,000 students studying with Seton. Um, their tuition is a fraction of the cost of most other Catholic schools, and it makes Catholic education available in every corner of the country, even in rural areas where you know, you, you're not going to find a parish with a sort of parochial school attached to it or things like that. Um, Seton is a nonprofit, which does everything possible to reduce costs, keep tuition low, so that as many families can get involved and find out if their way of doing Catholic education works for them. So if you would like to find out more, please go to their website, setonhome.org. You can see their Beginner's Guide to Seton right on the front page. 
which will answer a lot of the you know questions you may have. There's an eight-minute video right there on the homepage that can help you learn a lot more about how the whole thing works. And you can, you know, if you want to let them know that you heard about it on the Pillar Podcast, that wouldn't be terrible because uh, we like Seton and Seton seem to actually do us that like favor, us. listeners. While you're listening right now on your phone, on your computer, whatever, go to setonhome.org, sign up for the uh, Beginner's Guide to Seton, and check off that you heard about it from us. Um, because one, we want you to learn about it, and two, that would be helpful to Seton to know that people are listening. It'll take you just about 30 seconds. And then Seton will know that uh, people are listening and that the good people of the Pillar Podcast are um, interested in learning more about what I really think is if your family is even thinking remotely about homeschooling, it's a really good opportunity for you. And actually, even if you're not thinking about homeschooling, because one cool thing that Seton does is it makes available the books and curricula that it offer. And so even if you're an adult who wants to just sort of be more formed in the faith, you could take kind of a Seton high school level theology class, like understanding the scriptures or the early church fathers, and you would probably find that to be quite illuminating. It is, I mean, I, I am not at the point yet where we are educating my daughter in, in anything other than don't stick your finger in that. Um, but when we get there, I will certainly be checking out Seton, and I can say that I, I reconducted my own informal poll, and uh, four out of seven Catholic school teachers that I know personally are using Seton to educate their children. Seatonhome.org. We're back. Now, here's the other element of this that we want to talk about. So we've been talking about martyrs, and I think that's very interesting. But Ed, there's a really interesting ecumenical element of all of this as well, isn't there? I mean, this is, it is a big, gigantic ecumenical step, not totally unexpected in the sense that it seems that Pope Francis has been moving towards this in a variety of ways in terms of his conciliatory efforts towards the Orthodox, and not only Pope Francis, but his predecessors, Benedict XVI and John Paul II. But it is a big step to add Orthodox Christians to the Roman martyrology, um, is it not? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, Although, and I'm going to have Theologians get angry at me about this, which is fine. I'm I'm not a theologian, and I'm I can be a little ill-informed on these things, so I will take the correction when it comes. But I, I I'm, I'll be honest with you. I'm surprised that it's taken this long. I mean, I understand that there are important theological differences between the Catholic Church and the Coptic Orthodox Church, particularly in the realms of um, Christology and the 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 dual nature of Christ and, and everything. I get that. I get that. But I would have thought at its bare bones, we could agree that in the same way that a person is baptized validly by the invocation of the Trinity and some washing with water, regardless of whether they're Catholic or Orthodox, we could agree that someone who is killed for asserting that they believe in the same Trinity is also a martyr. Like that, that seems to me to be a natural common sense parallel. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, look, I do think you have seen it and I have too saying, oh, well, these Orthodox people were martyred for uh, a set of uh, doctrines, some of which are inimical to, to, to the church, you know, namely pertaining to sort of um, the chair of Peter, among probably some Christological differences, I presume, um, you know, ecclesiological differences related to the authority of Peter and the authority of other bishops and the synodal decision-making authority of the church's bishops, et cetera, et cetera. So I have certainly seen people in the last 24 hours since the Pope did this monumentous move saying, well, the the concern is that these people may have, um, have, uh, have been asserting those things. But let's um, or that their martyrdom is a sort of witness to a set of doctrines, some of which are inimical to, to, to the doctrine of the Catholic Church. But let's be honest, ISIL was not making that distinction. These guys were not martyred for um, the preservation of an orthodox ecclesiology. I suppose if... I'm trying to think of the situation in which that might be. I suppose that if some super sort of... Uh, the, the only person who might be inclined to martyr them for their commitment to Orthodox ecclesiology specifically would be someone who has some specific opposition to that ecclesiology, which is to say the only way that I can think that an Orthodox person might be martyred for their commitment to Orthodox ecclesiology over and against Catholic ecclesiology might be if they were martyred by a Catholic. Similarly, the only way I think that a Catholic might be martyred sort of for defending specifically the distinctions between 
Catholic ecclesiology and Orthodox ecclesiology or Catholic Christology and, and Orthodox Christology might be if they were subject to some very specific inquiries prior to their martyrdom, which would probably suggest they were martyred by an Orthodox Christian. But neither of those is the case here. These people were martyred by ISIL. And I know you don't want to say that, but I looked it up again, and they were indeed martyred by ISIL. These people were martyred by ISIL. Um, and uh, ISIL was not asking them to sort of uh, delineate the specific nuances of their ecclesiology before such time as they were beheaded on a Libyan beach. So the sort of opposition that they weren't sufficiently, uh, you, know, you know, that they weren't in the, incorporated into the juridic community of the Catholic Church before they were martyred, and therefore we should have some reservations about them, is very hard for me to, is poppycock. It's total and absolute poppycock. I don't, I don't understand how you can maintain well, they were all validly baptized Christians, but they can't have a valid Christian martyrdom right. for for dying for the baptism for in which they received. Like that, it's it's so it requires such a. Uh, I'm struggling for family friendly word here. Um, it is twaddle. It strikes me as twaddle. It strikes me as the kind of and don't get me wrong. I am about as you know. I I'm we're. We're canon lawyers. I like. I revel we like in like to equivocate. Yeah, we have we have talked on the show ad nauseum about apostasy, heresy, schism, the exact ways in which you maintain communion um, in faith, sacraments, and hierarchy with the one true Catholic Church, and all that. We've talked about that ad nauseum on the show. I, I'm not resiling from any of that, and we shouldn't have to demonstrate our bona fides on that point at no, this point. I, I wouldn't I have think. thought so. Nor do I think we need to demonstrate it to to the ladies and gentlemen at home who are. Incredibly right. well informed and, and conversant people, but the idea that you can say, "Oh no, these people who are baptized Christians who were murdered because they were baptized Christians and refused to renounce their baptism," uh, I don't know. We can be sure that they're martyrs. It's like, oh, what? Right. That that's treating your that's treating Christ, that's treating your Catholicism like a football team. Like if you don't wear the jersey, you you know you don't count. It's like what? I, I don't get it. I, it doesn't. I make think sense. there are people who are concerned about. Um, the appearance of jettisoning the extra ecclesium nullus salis sort of doctrine of the church, which is to say that no one can be saved outside the church. I think there are people who are concerned that the church might appear cavalier about the importance of even visible communion with the church, you know, with with the with the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and might appear to be sort of downplaying the importance of having visible the visible bonds of communion with the church uh, to that concern i would say i would argue that it's over, that it's that it's overwrought because um the fact of the matter is that a martyr it seems to me is in their martyrdom for the faith reconciled with the church it, you know it, more to the point there is no salvation outside the church because the church is the mediator of salvation but that doesn't so everyone who is saved comes to salvation through the sacrament of salvation which is the church through the bark of peter but that doesn't necessarily imply no no articulation of the church's doctrine of salvation necessarily implies or even comes close to implying that only those in the visible bonds of communion with the church can be saved that's a heresy itself that's the it is, well, and it's and again, it's it it's just it doesn't make any sense. Like to right. to suggest like oh well these people weren't juridically and and visibly professed Catholics at the time of their death, so they couldn't possibly be martyrs in heaven. It's like what what follow that thought to its logical conclusion. Are we are we saying therefore? Well, first of all, that's taking aside like you know, the fact that the Church distinguishes between those who break communion with the Catholic Church and those who are not raised in communion yeah. with the Catholic Church, and you know, there, there's that distinction. Um, but. But also, like, what? So we're saying that the Orthodox churches have valid sacraments, they have valid orders, they have a valid Eucharist, but since they're not juridically Catholic, they're all going to hell anyway. That that is not the ecclesiology of the Catholic Church. Is that if you're Orthodox, well, that's nice. You've got a lot of nice valid sacraments there, but you're all going to hell because you aren't Roman Catholic. You've got to be kidding me. No right. serious person can think that. Right. But there are a lot of unserious people out there. <laughs> there are a lot of unserious people, and we've built meantime, a really stupid internet of, so that we can one all know. One of the about. elements of the Roman martyrology is that these martyrs, their intercession can now be asked. We can pu there in in public liturgical context, their intercession can be sought. And I have to say, Ed, that I believe with hope. I hope 
in the sense that I have the expectation that God will act in this way, I hold the hope that these martyrs will represent a flourishing of Christianity in a place in which, you know, you know, in, in a place, i.e. North Africa, Libya, and Egypt, in which Christianity has uh, an ancient toehold, but it's a very small part of the, the makeup of the place. I genuinely believe that martyrdom can be the uh, the impetus for a new kind of spiritual flourishing. And, uh, and I'm really hopeful that I don't really believe it can be. I believe it always be is. What's that? Always so is, I right? I don't believe it. Yeah. And, and so I'm really hopeful that that will be the case um, right now. Me too. Yeah. I think that so, some of the people who have been expressing opposition or concern about this, which it's really drives me nuts, I don't think that they appreciate that JP2 sort of floated the idea of a common martyrology like frequently in his papacy. Um, and it, it didn't ultimately do it, but clearly wanted to do it. And I think was concerned about the way in which it would be perceived. And uh, Francis clearly not concerned about the way it would be perceived, but I think it would be a mistake to think that this it would be a mistake for people to say, oh, Pope Francis is liberal, blah, blah, blah. And he did this because he's not concerned with the primacy of the church and, you know, the, 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 the proper ecclesiology and stuff like that. Whatever you're going to say about Francis about this, you would effectively have to say about John Paul II as well. And I think that ought to at least give people who are sort of uh, reflexively critical of Francis and also critical of this pause to think about the fact that JP2 was driving in this direction like 25 years ago. So, so there's that. Okay. Since we're talking about these Egyptian martyrs, would you like to play an Egypt an Egypt related game? I would love to play an Egyptian themed related game. Sure. <laughs> okay. Um, I we're not going to talk about Vatican finances then. That's fine. That's go fine. ahead. Would you like to? No, talk no, about no, 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 no. That's fine. I, 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 I had wanted to talk a little bit about as if. Um, and the, the Vatican's financial watch. Go ahead, I'd like report, which can, No, no, no. I, you know what? We'll save it for next week because I heard a funny thing. I was talking to some people in Rome um, overnight, as I tend to do, and um, there, there's something brewing, J.D. I, there's I, something I, brewing with I gather, the Vatican I have financial been told, administration. And I'm going to spend the rest of the day, and probably, I, I really hope I don't end up having to do this on Saturday because I have a full dance card on Saturday of things that I haven't done around the house and for my wife uh, in recent weekends. And, I will and mow your lawn while you work on this. That's kind of you. Um, but you're not mowing my lawn. Nobody mows my No, don't. Did you watch True Detect? Never mind. Um, anyway, there's, uh, I've heard whispers uh, that there's, that the Pope is going to have a bit of a bloodbath at APSA next week, possibly as soon as Monday, total clean sweep at the top. President gone. That's Bishop uh, Galino. Uh, the, secretary gone all the board members turned over like the whole thing is just gonna be turned inside out put into special measures special commissioner appointed um you know audit the whole business which 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 would track like it, this is one of those you know big if true things and it would totally track for me because no one else seems to have noticed this we're the only ones who've been reporting it for the last year but the pope has came out last year with predicate evangelium saying APSA is where all the curial money has to go. All curial bank accounts have to go to APSA. All curial assets have to be managed by APSA. APSA is going to run absolutely everything that the Holy See and all of its deten attendant departments and dicasteries and councils, and it's all going to go to APSA. They're going to run the whole show. And that was a huge reform. And then like two months later, he said, and I'm issuing a rescript. And by APSA, I meant, of course, the IOR. And, and that was a huge deal that nobody noticed, but um, you know, the, the IOR I've been saying this for years is like the, is the only and seriously credible financial institution in the Holy See. Like they're the ones who don't have anybody on trial. Um, they had a lot of problems in the past, but the current president and director, Jean-Baptiste de Francois and Jean-Franc Amami, um, they're legit. They're the real deal. Those guys, and so Francis has been sort of quietly re-centralizing all Vatican assets and finances in the IOR instead of APSA, which only exists to do that in the first place. And it's just been fascinating. So if the Pope is going to basically um, reach down the throat of APSA and turn it inside out and, and you know, shake it till all the loose change falls out, that, that would be interesting. Um, 
I I'm I I don't have it cold yet, but I'm I'm I've heard some very very strong indications that that's coming, and it'll be fascinating to have it. And and more fascinating is what's dry like who's who's got the juice to drive this? And that's what I'm really interested. That's yeah. what I'm trying to find out. Yeah, is because I mean, look, I, Pope Francis has definitely done a lot for financial reform of the Vatican. Don't get me wrong; he's done way more than Benedict the Sixteenth yeah. did. He's done way more than JP two did. Yeah. Um, no questions there. But I mean, his, I, I, it is not my impression that he has got the details under his fingernails all the time, and his attention span has been somewhat haphazard. Uh, when it comes to seeing these things through. So if we are seeing a concerted effort to basically minimize ABSA and maximize the IOR, which again, I think is really good. Um, I, I want to know who's got the juice to do this because yeah. there's no, there's no, there's no Cardinal Pell anymore. Right. There's no Libro Maloney. I mean, there is a Libro Maloney, but I mean, he's, he's suing the Vatican. for. So who might be driving it? Is there any reason? I really don't know. That's the thing. I've been racking my brain. There's nobody, it's nobody at the secretary of state. You can absolutely be sure of that. Um, The, the current auditor general who was Maloney's deputy deputy when he was there, I get the sense that he's well-meaning, but kind of a place man and, you know, got the job because he was the one of the team of three under Maloney that didn't rock the boat. Uh, So I'd be, I'd be shocked to discover he's now got, you know, true religion about all of this and is yeah. forcing it through. Um, Barbara Gallo, the current president of Asif, um, he, he arrived with a decent reputation. You know, he's, he's known as a, as a reasonably legit reformer. I, there's nothing I have read in Asif's um, annual reports that suggests to me that he's an aggressive go-getter though. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it may be, DeFranzu and Mami are just like so plugged in and have been so vindicated over the whole Vatican trial thing that now, you know, if they suggest that something's a good idea, it's just happening. I'd love to think that was the case, but in which case he, they should really be promoted. Um, they should, they should be running the whole show, but I, I don't know. I, I honestly have no idea who would have the juice to make this happen, but it does seem to be happening and it seems to be happening in a sort of not slow motion, but like consistent over the course of a year. Yeah. The ratchet has been tightening and tightening and tightening and tightening. The creation of that registry of like outside financial interests and attendant foundations and all that stuff, yeah. which was in the ASIF report. And, you know, they did a lot of the legwork and setting it up and everything. And I'm credit where it's due on that. Um, you know, having, having all of that come in, like somebody is driving this and I really want to know who it is. Cause I, if nothing else, I want to shake their hand and buy them a beer, but it's, it's fascinating to me. Yeah, that's all. So okay. we'll talk about that. So that's by way of saying we might have more to say about this next week if we and when will. something's actually happened. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about these Egyptian Christians, and uh, we talked about playing a little game about Egypt. And uh, so during the we made a plan that I knew was going to fail, but we made it anyway, which was that during the course of the show, I would write an Egypt yes or no, which fails because we're talking to each other, we're having a great Catholic conversation. It's not really a time to be distracted by doing other things. Um, no, indeed. No. So what I have done instead, Ed, is found a little thing called Ancient Egypt Quiz for Kids. <laughs> okay. That's probably about my level. Yeah. This is an Ancient Egypt Quiz for Kids. And since we're talking about Egyptians, we talked about playing an Egypt-related game. And so if you're ready for a game, I would like to give to you, and we'll see how you do on Ancient Egypt Quiz for Kids. Please and thank you. Okay. And some of them I am going to take the answer and give you a multiple choice because if I feel like you don't have any way of knowing, I want to at least help you out a little bit. Does that seem it's, fair? It's for kids. I feel like I should, I've seen all the Brendan so Fraser movies. I should multiple be good choice options. Uh, let, let, let's give it to me cold. And if I have to appeal for multiple guests, I will. I think on some you might. So let's just see. Okay. All right. All right, Ed, here we are in, uh, in honor of the 21 uh, martyrs of Libya, uh, who most of whom were Egyptian, the ancient Egypt, uh, trivia quiz for kids. Ed, number one, what, and play along at home, see if you do better than Ed, what did the ancient Egyptians call the constellation, which we call the Big Dipper? Uh, do they call it the plow? Would you like a multiple choice? No, no, I'll have another, I'll take another swing if I need to. Uh, the sickle? <laughs> you really have an agricultural theme going here. Well, I would have thought. You were, they were close, agricultural they people. called it the hippopotamus. What? Yeah, the hippopotamus, because it looks... Nothing like a hippopotamus. I don't know. Okay, Ed, number two. Where did ancient Egyptian women place or wear perfume? 
Um, the wrists. Would you like a multiple choice? No. <laughs> okay. Um, the correct answer, Ed, was in wax cones on their heads. Get out. That's what I'm told from the Ancient Egypt Quiz for Kids website. That's awesome. So wait, the, all that stuff that I'm seeing in the sort of um, pyramid hieroglyphic art, the two-dimensional thing, like that's those aren't hats. Those are like pyramids. They're wearing basically an air freshener on their head. It sounds that way to me. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that, that's strong. That is a strong statement. Used to make bread and beer. What was the major crop of ancient Egypt? Used to make bread and beer. What was the major crop of ancient Egypt? Barley? Hey, you got one. Well done. You know your, you know your ancient Egyptian agriculture. I'll give you that, Ed. I've always said that about you. That along with my celebrity trivia. <laughs> I, got these yeah, I bet Brendan Fraser would know that too. At least old Brendan Fraser. Old Brendan Fraser. Okay, uh, Brendan Ed, Fraser just cry. when the Egyptians held a party, the ancient Egyptians held a party, what did they call it? Uh, How did they describe it? Okay, I will take multiple guesses on this one. Okay. Was it a river cruise? A house of beer or a blissful rest? I'm going to go with, I mean, a house of beer is clearly an American thing, characteristic of high school and undergraduate life. So it's not that. Um, a, you said a blissful rest? Yes. Well, that's death, I would assume. So I'm going to go with a river cruise. During parties, the host's home was called the house of beer. I just learned on this child's website. And if you had a big house, you, you just had, had a big you have beer, a pyramid a big of beer? beer house. Yep, that's right. All right. I yep. mean, obviously the pyramids were was made house. by partially baking loaves of barley, uh, followed by crumbling it into water and then fermenting it. The beer was then strained before drinking to avoid the lumps. Obviously. Yeah. Okay. Standard jailhouse brew. We all know how it goes. Yeah, that's actually, this is a new way of brewing that I kind of want to try. Okay. Ed, what breed of dog was used as a hunting dog in ancient Egypt? This is a modern recognizable breed. Was it the Egyptian gazelle hound, the greyhound, or the Nile terrier? I'm going to go with the Nile terrier because that sounds cool. <laughs> it does sound cool, but it was the greyhound. Oh. Yeah. That's, okay. They need to hunt fast in Egypt. I mean... All of this is false, right? Because in reality, ancient Egypt was uh, was a vassal state to aliens. Like that's, that's what, I mean, we Mike know that's how it happened. asking me if we can go to ancient Egypt. And so I've shown him like a bunch of YouTubes of contemporary Egypt. And he's like, no, that's not the place where I want to go. I want to go to ancient Egypt. Show him Stargate. Show him Stargate. I, I don't know what that is. Okay, it's a, Ed, oh, come on. You, can, you have to. Stargate was a classic late 90s schlock sci-fi action movie. James Spader. I mean. I don't know who that is. I, you know who James Spader is. Don't you? Don't be ridiculous, James Daniel. How would I, I know that? He's a he's a relatively famous actor and has been for quite some time. He was the he was the preppy bad boy in virtually every decent eighties teenage rom com. Name please the only wind instrument in ancient Egypt. I'm gonna go with the oboe. <laughs> it sounds Egyptian. Is an oboe a wind instrument? It might, you blow on it. What, what? Yeah, but it yeah, that's true. Uh, and the answer is the flute. What is the definition of a flute? Yeah, that's a really good really? question. What is its essence? Because if they mean some sort of, it, I, I suspect they actually mean something more like a recorder. Or I'm, or a but penny I, tell whistle, what, yeah. I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to close this episode of the show with some ancient Egyptian flute music. If our producer I, can find that on YouTube. <laughs> I'm incredulous that such a thing exists. But we'll okay, find out. Cool. Okay, Ed, two more. What was the most popular pet in ancient Egypt? Cat? Uh, according to ancient Egypt quiz for kids, the most popular answer is dog. Cats, um, 
Oh, were they gods or something? Cats were believed to have magical powers. Right, People cats were cats, magic. Cats, cats were not gods, but they were believed to have magical powers. Cats guarded your children and your homes. It was against the law in ancient Egypt to harm a cat. Uh, cats were obviously used in art and for royalty and things like that. So lots of people had a cat, but they weren't. It's a trick question because they weren't thought of as pets. They were thought of as sort of talismans and duty. To my point about aliens, it's not possible that the same human civilization could think cats are magic and build the pyramids. Yeah, it's like James There's Peter a missing says. piece of this puzzle. Here, here's an interesting one. And the last one, let's see how you do. Ed, what did the ancient Egyptians believe would cure... What Eating what? Did the ancient Egypt's, Egyptians believe would cure a toothache? Crocodile eggs. Uh, would you like a multiple choice? Okay, but can we agree that crocodile eggs would have been an interesting one? It still might be the answer. Oh, okay. Then yes, I'll take the choice. Okay. Crocodile eggs... Hold on, I gotta make up another couple. <laughs> I, I'm just gonna skip to the end for you here and say I'm doubling down on croc eggs. <laughs> uh, crocodile eggs, fried mice, or ostrich gizzards. I'm gonna say croc eggs because I don't know for sure there were ostriches in ancient Egypt. And. And you fried, mice. fried mice. Well, I figured that's just like a, you know, bar food. <laughs> nope, it was a toothache food. No kidding. Fried mice were also popular in Elizabethan England. Mice were either fried or baked in pies. Well, that's because and mice were used to treat whooping cough, measles, smallpox, and bedwetting in Elizabethan England. Ed, those are your ancestors. I. Wait a minute. Sorry, what? Ed, this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast was brought to us by the Seton Home Study School. Listeners, to find out if Seton Home Study School is right for your family, check it out at setonhome.org. That's setonhome.org. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Energy Production. Uh, our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. My podcasting partner is Ed Encino Man, the whale himself, Condon. We'll be back. Isn't that the name of the movie? Yeah, but you've kind of blown your own kayfabe here. You clearly do know who he is. <laughs> we'll be back next week, everybody.